we're just going to read the, the two verses, and I'll give you the context in, in a few minutes. All right? So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's Word? Gracious Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes, open our hearts, enliven our hearts, Lord, that we might understand not just the black and white words on the page, but what they mean for us today and how we are to live the truth out that is contained right here in front of us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up, by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald-headed. Go up, you bald-head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. This is God's inspired word for us today. So there you have it. There's the guess. Please be seated. There you go. There's another one of those passages that, that you, you read it. You'll see it in context. You go, what, what was God thinking when he included this? But, you know, prophets did some weird things. Okay, The Old Testament prophets in particular uh, had some, some difficult times in their lives. Sometimes they are commanded to act out the words of the Lord in physical demonstration. That was one, Ezekiel would be one of those. Sometimes they're commanded to put aside any thought of personal life or that their personal lives would actually demonstrate the message that God wants them to communicate to the people. Hosea as an example. Sometimes they spend their entire lives as a prophet, Isaiah, and sometimes they're just, they hit the scene for one message and then they're gone again. That would be someone like Amos who comes and says, oh, you're in trouble. Unless you repent, it's going to be nothing but bad. And then he goes away. Then he goes away. Universally, the prophets are disliked. Uh, Nobody likes a prophet who brings usually It's bad news. Now, there's some hope with the prophets because they say, well, this is going to happen. But if you turn from your sin and follow the Lord, he may relent. Uh, But typically, the prophets were disliked. Many of them were killed because they delivered the word of God to an unappreciative and disobedient crowd of people. They were God's chosen people, but yet they did not follow the Lord. Well, our prophet here in, in 2 Kings is Elisha, Elisha, uh, not Elijah. And we'll see the, the distinction in just a minute. But Elisha has an additional problem than being the deliverer of bad news and, and God's word sometimes. But he has to follow Elijah. And now, Elijah was a pretty heavy hitter as far as the prophets are concerned. He did some fantastic things. He delivered the word of the Lord, and they... Followed him. Now it's under. Now I don't know how it is in your your professions, um, but if you uh, in the ministry world in the in the pastor world, if you come into a church as as a new call and the the previous pastor has been there ten or fifteen or twenty years, uh, that that's just trouble. Okay, because you stand up and begin to say things and people go, well, our previous pastor didn't say it that way. Well, our previous pastor didn't do it that way. And, and, and then when they begin, well, you're not him. Now, that, that might be uh, you know, a demonstration of the love of the previous pastor and things like that. But um, it's kind of tough 
So that's why often churches have interims where there's a period of time, especially after a long pastorate, that there's a time where you can can adjust and figure out where you want to go, and, and when the new person comes in, you're ready to, to follow them. Well, Elisha follows directly on the heels of Elijah. Okay, There is no interim. And in fact, the two of them go off together. And they go, and they come to the River Jordan, and... Elijah, uh, Elijah hits the river and the river parts and the two prophets go across the river on dry land. Now the, what's called the guild of prophets uh, are standing back on the other side of the Jordan and they see this. The guild of prophets would be uh, kind of a prophetic school, uh, 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 um, how would I describe them? Uh, they're not on the level of Elijah and Elisha. But they're kind of within the cultural context of the Old Testament. And they were called prophets. And there's this prophetic school and this guild of prophets. And they go around and kind of encourage people. Um, uh, we might categorize them as seminary dropouts today. How about that? Okay, seminary dropouts. Well, they see them go across. And then there's this big wind and Elisha comes back. And he hits the river, it parts, they come across, he's got Elijah's cloak. So he comes by and they're going, where's Elijah? Because he was our guy. Now, now what'd you do with him? Uh, What did you do with him? Well, you know, uh, he's gone. And we know what happened. The Lord took him up. He did not die. The Lord took him up in chariots and fire and all kinds of stuff. Now, the guild of prophets, everybody was on this side of the river, did not see that happen. They just see some disturbance and some wind, and Elisha comes back by himself. So, you know, even at the beginning of Elijah's work, if we look back in there, there were those who did not believe Elijah was really the prophet of God. And there were a couple times where he demonstrated fantastic power from the Lord. Remember the prophets of Baal. There they are up on uh, Mount Carmel and uh, the prophets of Baal, they build their altar and Elijah builds his. And he says, well, you have at it, prophets of Baal, and we'll see. Call down fire and whoever God, whoever God's produced, that's who is true. So the prophets of Baal dance around and remember they cut themselves and they, they go into all this ecstatic and Elijah's over there going, well, yell louder. Maybe he's asleep and doesn't hear you. Or maybe he's gone aside. Aside is another euphemism for, uh, you know, the egg-long thing, where maybe he's in the restroom, okay? So Elijah's really making fun of them, and nothing happens, and they destroy Elijah's altar, and, and you know, the story, Elijah rebuilds it, he pours water on it, pours water on it again, pours water on it again, prays, and the Lord sends down fire, and it is consumed, okay? And what do they do? Do they naturally bow down and worship the Lord? They don't want to kill Elijah, okay? They want to kill him. So he travels off, and other times he has to hide out in, in uh, the Zarephath, and um, you know he also calls down fire on two groups of soldiers uh, in First Kings. So we see this demonstration by Elijah in his early port part of his ministry, and by now he's pretty well set. At the time of his death, he can go throughout the country; everybody knows him as the prophet. And then he and Elisha go across the river, and he's gone. And Elisha has to come back alone. Now he's got the cloak. He's got Elijah's cloak. And that's symbolic of the passing of of authority at that time. Now what did Elisha ask for? 
Remember? A double portion. I mean, here's Elijah who can call down fire from heaven. And Elisha says, well, I'd like twice as much, Lord. You know? And, and, and But he is the Lord's man in this day and age. So the Guild of Prophets is over there, and, and Elisha comes back by himself, and he doesn't have the authority yet. He's got Elijah's cloak, but they're just not on board with him. And so they get around him and say, well, where's Elijah? They say, well, he's gone. And so, well, are you sure? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's go look for him. Let's go look for his body. That's what they say. If we, if we go back to uh, 2 Kings, um, um, yeah, 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, I'm, I'm suddenly blanking on uh, where I want to be here. Uh, let's start in 15, verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down. And they said to him, Behold, um, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let us then go and search for your master. That would be Elijah. Well, he comes over by himself and they say, Yeah, you're the man, but where's Elisha? Because he was really our guy. And Elisha says, No, he's gone. And they really don't believe him. And this is a sign that he doesn't carry that authority yet uh, that Elijah has. And so they go back about uh, verse 15, um, or verse, verse 17. But when they urged him until he was ashamed and said, send. And they sent, therefore, 50 men and they searched three days. But they didn't find Elijah because Elijah is in heaven with the Lord. And they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho and he said to him, uh, didn't I tell you? I told you so. You know, you know you're not going to find him because he's gone. He's gone. So here we have this uh, this change in um, change in authority, change in uh, who's going to be the mouthpiece of the Lord. And as I said, when I, when Elisha crossed back over, he did not have that authority yet because they questioned him and said, "Well, let's go find Elijah." No, he's not there. And the very fact that they sought to change Elisha's mind about going out and searching after Elijah demonstrates that they really didn't trust him or didn't have uh, faith that he was the replacement for Elijah. Because if you're going to honor the prophet, you take his word as the word of God. So there's a little bit of background to our particular passage here, those two verses that, that we read. So... Go to verse 19 now. And then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold now, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Okay, the water is bad. Uh, this was not uncommon in, in this day and age. And often you see aqueducts built or water had to be brought in from far away. Um, perhaps the most famous of this would be one of those cities from Revelation Laodicea. They had water coming in from two different places, from the hot springs and from the cold springs. And by the time both of those waters got to Laodicea, the water temperature was lukewarm. Okay, and that and, and John uses that as an illustration about their faith. Okay, so the water here at Jericho is simply this is bad water. And he said, "Bring me a new jar and put salt in it." So they brought it to him. 
he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it now he goes to the spring of the water he goes to the source of the water he doesn't just throw it into the fountain in the middle of town or or anything like that he goes to the source of the water and he takes this jar that he's put salt in and and said thus says the Lord I have purified these waters there shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer so the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elisha which he spoke so here is his first real miracle and and understand Elisha uses salt simply as an illustration there's no special this weren't this wasn't any special salt that he dug up from any place else this was simply one of those things that he used to illustrate the power of God so God is using this salt to purify the waters for an entire town there's nothing special about this salt it's not a good it's not like the city needed a good dose of Epsom salts or anything like that the salt simply was the illustration of God's power and to to purify the water now we understand about what flows out of, of the source because Jesus says in in, in the New Testament uh, he makes it very clear, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and witnesses and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Not necessarily that they come out of the mouth, but where do they originate? They originate in the heart. He, just, he says in, in Luke, he says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's very clear here that it is the heart which defiles a man. And, and he's using this as, as kind of an illustration. And if we go back far enough, I mean, even, even Aristotle in his writings understands this. I'm going to quote just a little bit. The goodness or badness of anything is determined from its principle, from its source. And it's the same type thing. Now, obviously, Aristotle did not understand sinfulness in the in a biblical fashion. He did not understand grace. But he knew it wasn't just the words you say. It was the motivation from it. It was where it comes from, and that is the heart. Now to this instant incident with the boys, the boys and the bears. Um, verse 23, then he went up from there to Bethel. This is after the waters have been purified, so keep that in mind. Uh, this plays into this story, I believe. And as he was going up, by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears. Now, female bears that doesn't elaborate on all that it means. It's two, um, um, two bears with cubs. Okay. Now, the cubs aren't mentioned here, but in the context and, and the Hebrew, we get the impression that it's two bears with cubs. Okay, came out of the woods and tore up the 42 lads of their number. Okay. It's a very simple story, but yet the question is, why is it included here in Scripture? Why is it here? Well, the first thing we have to understand is this is not, this is not a story about some little boys who were out playing and saw this old guy, a prophet, come by, and they went, oh, look at that old guy, doesn't have any hair, and, and just in fun, you know, how little kids can be, little kids just say what's 
on their mind you know if you've been to the store and your little child has pointed to somebody and said something well that's just what little kids do this is not a story about little kids who just in their innocence made fun of a guy with no hair that is not what it says okay now understand this is a he's on a a trek from Jericho to Bethel and it's it's a 25 mile walk and you go from 1300 feet below sea level to 2200 feet above sea level so it's quite a climb as you go there and Bethel place where he is going and the place where this this takes place is one of the two cities that has been had been designated as a place of worship by Jeroboam who ran the northern kingdom okay this is after the division of the kingdom remember when when uh, Solomon died and he fell to his sons it fell to son Rehoboam Rehoboam took the southern kingdom and this guy Jeroboam takes the northern kingdom and Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, and that's where the temple is, and that's where everybody has to come to worship. So Jeroboam, who's a man of, uh, um, he wants to be a prosperous king. How about that? So he looks at his population and goes, you know, if everybody has to worship at least once a year and they'll all go to Jerusalem, they're going to take all those dollars with them down to Jerusalem because they have to eat down there, they have to stay down there, they have to buy sacrifices down there. So he says to make it easier for them. Now he says to make it easier, but in reality he's thinking, I don't want the dollars of my kingdom going down to Rehoboam's kingdom. So I'm going to build two temples, two places of worship, one in Dan, and if you... Um, if you, if you know about Dan, Dan became so bad as, as a people that they, their tribe is actually not mentioned in the tribes in Revelation. Their name is dropped because they went did such pagan things. So there's one at, at Dan up there in the northern edge, and there's one at Bethel, which is the southern edge. So every, nobody has a, a reason to go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. Stay in our country and worship here. Well, the problem is the Lord did not designate either of these cities as a place to worship. So the prophet is on his way to Bethel, and it is a nasty place. Uh, the, one of the golden calves that Jeroboam had set up is there. It is pagan place. It is a place where God is no longer worshipped. Is no longer uh, given any. Uh, is no longer revered. And so that's the place that Elijah is stepping into okay so there's there's the context for that now about the boys the boys is not a good translation here okay yes they are male um, but the word that is translated here boys or young lads is also translated in several other places um, um, Solomon uses that word of himself when he is over 20 years of age Jeremiah uh, uses that word of himself when he was old enough to enter into the prophetic ministry. Uh, Joseph uses that word of himself when he's 70 years of age. So this is a phrase that has a, a different meaning than just, you know, um, a five-year-old or, or a seven-year-old or something like that. They are male, and there are at least 42 of them because 42 were injured. Okay, so there are at least 42 that were there. 
and there could have been others, but, and, you know, how, uh, uh, how, 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 uh, how do you outrun a bear? You just outrun one person, okay? So if you can outrun 42, you're going you're gonna to be okay here. You're going to be okay. So whatever their exact age here, they're old enough to know better. They're old enough to know that you don't make fun of God's prophet. You don't make fun of God's prophet. They were not just saying in, in good, good jest, oh, man, you don't have any hair. Uh, no, this is much more than just a, a dig on his shiny head. Okay? This is a personal affront to the prophet. And when you make a personal affront to the prophet, you're making a personal affront to the Lord himself. To the Lord himself. So, remember I mentioned the water. Elijah had just cleansed the water of Jericho. And there is some thought in, in the scholarly writings that maybe these boys had a business of bringing in fresh water to Jericho. Since the water was bad. And now that Elijah, Elisha has made fresh water there in the city, they've lost their business. And, and they're following him along, and they really don't like this guy because they've taken money. He's taken money out of their pockets. Okay. So he comes along here, and they go, oh, go up, old bald head. Go up, old bald head. Now, he's done this miracle as a representative of the Lord, and they're being offensive to that representative. Now, Elisha, from what we can see, doesn't take it personally. It's not like... You snotty-nosed kids or whatever it is, I'm going to show you. No, he takes it as an affront to the Lord, as an affront to the Lord. He did not curse them in his own name. Look at this again. Uh, when he looked behind him, he saw them, he cursed them, what? In the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Then the two bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 of the lads. He cursed them in the name of the Lord, and if they had not committed a sin against the Lord, he would not have cursed them in the name of the Lord. So the Lord never, if they, if they wouldn't have offended the Lord, the Lord would not have visited them with a punishment from the bears. They would have just gone on. They were selfish. They didn't respect the prophet. They watched Elisha's movements. They followed him. They came out in mass, at least 42. Now just imagine yourself surrounded by 42 um, males, young males. Uh, you know, as, as I said, the, the word encompasses everything from young boys to 70-year-old men. So this is a big crowd, and they're after Elisha. They're watching him, and they see him out there by themselves, and they get out there and and if they are upset about his purifying the water, then they're upset that an entire city will now have health. An entire city will now, their lives will be changed because of the ease to get purified water. And, and anybody who's been in a third world nation knows um, the, the importance of purified water. Um, we used to go to Mexico here and down in Shpoo Hill, and it was, the ladies would spend three hours of their day getting water. They would take a wheelbarrow and fill it up and go into the caves and bring back this green stuff. Okay, and we would go down and build cisterns. And then the cisterns, they had clean water after that. Okay, so clean water is, is preeminent in their lives. So the boys are upset that the town now has clean water and they're out of business. And they want to take it out on the prophet. And really, 
it is simply poetic justice that they care nothing for the lives of others and their lives are disrupted here by the bears. So what do we learn from this? We say, okay, well, Rand, that, that's, that's, that's pretty weird. Uh, if I have to look at it, that, that he just lets the bears have at these guys. What is it for us? What is it for us today that, that we take from this? A couple things. God hates selfishness. God, it's pretty clear here. God hates selfishness. And when human selfishness sets itself up in opposition to the mercy of God and the movement of God and his loving kindness, there's going to be a rebuke. Okay, There's going to be a rebuke. It's to be noted here, it doesn't say that they all were killed, that the 42 boys. It just says, and 42 lads of the number were torn up. So the Lord does not kill them. But he rebukes them. Now, uh, I don't know what it's like to be mauled by a bear. And I really don't want to find out. I mean, I saw a bear once uh, out in Jackson Hole. I'm out hiking. And uh, there was a bear about 20 yards up there. And he's eating berries, minding his own business. I'm walking, minding my own business. And uh, he looks at me like this and goes, mm. so he heads up the hill. And I, I go on the trail and this uh, boy, about 12, comes by me, and I said, son, you better slow down. There's a bear up there. And, you know, a 12-year-old boy, he went, oh, cool. And he went running off of, up the path. And mom and dad come around the corner, and I said, your boy just went up the path. And they said, yeah, I said, there's a bear up there. And then mom and dad went running up there. And they're, they're probably thinking, why didn't you stop him? Well, the bear was, was up there. But I don't want to be mauled by a bear. But that's bad enough that they were mauled by bears, and 42 of them were as punishment for this, but they didn't lose their lives. Elisha did not personally harm these individuals. The Lord did. The Lord brought this punishment upon them because of their own selfishness, their own abhorrence to the things of God. If we don't like that judgment, we have to take it up with the Lord because he's the one that did it. And there's plenty of evidence in Scripture that he will do this kind of thing in other places. In Leviticus 26, he says, If you walk in hostility against me and are not willing to obey me, I will increase your affliction seven times according to your sins. I will send against you the animals of the field, and it will, it will bereave you of your children, annihilate your cattle, diminish your population. Your roads will become desolate. If what? Your hostility against me. This is the punishment that the Lord has. Later on in 2 Chronicles, if we read in, in chapter 36, uh, the Lord God of their ancestors continually warned them through the, his messengers, for he felt compassion for his people in his dwelling place. These are the people who reject God. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his warnings, and ridiculed his prophets. Finally, the Lord got angry at his people, and there was no one that could prevent the judgment upon his people. And you think, well, really is... See, and you, you might think, that's the picture I've had of God all my life. That he's just up there waiting to crush some fun. Okay, anybody who gets out of line, you know, that's what the Lord does. I, maybe you, you were raised and had this, this image of a very judgmental God. A God that was, uh, you know, if you're not crossing the T's and dotting the I's, then he's going to come down and wallop you. But understand, this is a compassionate God as well. Look at the prophet Jonah. Remember? God has his plan to save Nineveh. And Jonah says, I don't want to save those people. I don't want to go to that city. I'm going to 
thwart the plan of God. I'm going to go someplace else. He says, no, no, you're going to Nineveh. And you're going to deliver my message of repentance. And you're going to see the entire city repent. Remember, he walks through. He delivers a seven-word sermon throughout the entire city. And the entire city repents. And then Jonah goes outside and sits on a hill. And while he's there, the sun is just beating down on him. And the Lord causes this plant to grow up and give him shade. And in the morning, the plant dies. And Jonah is just mad as all get out that the plant died. Because he doesn't have any shade anymore. And, and, and the Lord is, is, is talking to him about this. He says, you have compassion for the plant. Something that you have not worked over nor made to grow. A thing that lasted a night and then perished. Now should I not have compassion for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right from their left? That would probably be youngsters who do not know their right from their left. He says, this is a God of compassion. This is not a God who waits around just to squash our fun, and if we get out of line to smash us. This is a God of compassion, a God of grace and mercy. And for those who know better, like these boys, they knew better. Well, there is punishment for sin. You have to bear that upon yourself. You have to take responsibility for that. So if we're going to take this passage and apply it in our lives, let's think about it today. When the word of God is proclaimed, when people live lives of faithfulness, when people live lives of holiness and begin to demonstrate that in society, in their daily lives, that is when Satan begins to act in our lives. Don't, don't think that, that Satan is just sitting around going, oh, you know, I just, you go ahead and live holy lives. That's great. No. He wants to disrupt the church as much as he can when we are living out the things of the gospel. And is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Understand, it is the words we proclaim from here. It is the word that is lived out in our lives, in, in actions, in compassion. Satan holds the world in bondage to death. He doesn't want people to experience salvation. He does not want them to change, to have changed hearts and changed lives, to live lives of holiness. He does not want them to experience the power of the risen Christ or the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not interested in any of that. So Satan never works harder than when the gospel is proclaimed, when people's lives are lived to the glory of God. He hates the word. He hates the people of the word, especially when they live it out. So therefore, you would think that those involved in ministry of the word, those involved who are trying to live out holiness, can expect opposition. Elisha here is living out holiness. He's got opposition. In fact, one of the key lessons of these verses is that, that when you live holy lives, there will be opposition. There will be hatred towards you. And we can expect attack from the world. Just the way it is. Now the Lord may or may not bring bears upon your enemies. I don't know. And, and we'll see as we get into the Psalms and we, we read about the imprecatory Psalms. Where David says, Lord, there's my enemy. I just wish you would kill them all. Is that a prayer that we can pray today? Uh, you wait till we get there. I'm not going to give that away. So the Lord may or not bring bears upon it, but he will bring upon those who face persecution the grace to sustain them. He promises that. The grace to sustain us, the strength in the midst of whatever it is we face. 
because our God's compassionate God. He's caring for those who belong to him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, here we have some young men who are upset and make fun of the prophet. And there's punishment there. They're selfish. They want only their own gain. They don't care about the lives of an entire city. And the, the prophet speaks a curse in your name because they really have offended you. Lord, we know that as believers, your word is clear that the world will hate us because they hated our Savior, Jesus Christ. They will, the world will stand in opposition to us. The things of Satan, of the evil one, will battle against us. But we know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the move of the church. Because the gates of hell have no power of the Holy Spirit. They do not possess the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have given it to us. And it is powerful. And the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, we pray that we would be wise in its application. That we would be wise in how we live these things out. That we might take into account, Lord, our own selfishness and, and, and put it aside. Our own weaknesses and rely upon you that we might be strengthened. Lord, that in all that we do and say, the words and the things of Christ would be proclaimed in our lives. And we ask this in his name.